hey, there's a show you might want to know about. Now in its tenth season, Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a podcast about tragedy, triumph, unequal justice, and actual innocence. Based on the files of the lawyers who represent them, together with other criminal justice activists and experts, Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom features interviews with men and women who have spent years in prison for crimes they did not commit, some of them having even been sentenced to death. These are their stories. Look for Wrongful Conviction wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, it's Seen on Radio. I'm John Bewin. This is not a news show, and most of the time I don't have anything to say about the latest headlines. But last week, two more police shootings of black men, both brought to light by citizen-made video, Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge, Philando Castile in Minnesota, followed by the sniper in Dallas killing five white police officers in apparent payback for police violence against black people, an especially troubling week in a deeply troubled country. If there's anything hopeful to be drawn from this national trauma, maybe it's that there's no room anymore for that cherished illusion, it's a white person's illusion mostly, that all is well, that we've more or less done the work of healing the country's racial wounds. We haven't. The idea behind our collaborative local project, Storymakers Durham, was to get some people talking in one richly diverse, medium-sized American city, and to put microphones in the hands of a team of citizens and send them out to record and tell stories about the things that divide and unite us. If you haven't listened to the last two episodes of Seen on Radio, you may want to do so before you listen to this one. In any case, here in episode 23, three more pieces from the Storymakers. Are we rolling? We are we rolling. We're rolling this time? We're rolling. Right. You know, Live, all right. You know what, sir? <laughs> I don't appreciate your time. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, my name is Noah Gordon Kessler. Okay. I am uh, 32 years old, uh, born and raised in Durham, North Carolina. Woohoo, we'll see. <laughs> so, Courtney Smith. Yes. One of our Storymakers. How old are you? 27 years old. And what's your background in Durham? Uh, my parents moved my entire family here when I was five years old and um, grew up here for a big portion of my life, considered Durham my home more than anywhere else. And who's this Noah guy? So Noah's my coworker at Loaf Bakery. Uh, we work together afternoons and evenings at the bakery, five nights a week. Uh, making bread and, and setting up pastries and all those things that people love to come to Loaf for. Um, Noah and I are some of the people that make sure that um, you have them the next day. We start the process of like making the doughs and things. Um, so yeah, lots of time spent with him. <laughs> you may remember Courtney. I introduced her briefly two episodes ago. Hey Noah, do you mind grabbing me a gallon or two of milk while you're up there? Thank you. She and Noah had already had some probing conversations about things like race, more deep and honest than with most of her white acquaintances, she says. Then, working together those nights at the bakery, she started telling him about the Storymakers project she was involved in, and the conversations went deeper. In particular, they learned things about each other's backgrounds in Durham that they hadn't shared. 
Eventually, Courtney took her recorder to work a couple of times and decided to make those talks the basis of her radio piece. With Noah, and with help from her sister, Courtney explores a kind of loss of innocence and the gravitational pull of the racial divide. So the first time I met Noah, he was extremely friendly, like, hey, how you doing? Um, my first impression of him was that he was um, this white, good old Southern white boy. That's what he looked like. He sounded, he had a very thick Southern accent. Um, he was making hot dogs and offered me once. I was like, oh, you're just, you're, you're, you're a Southerner, you know? Um, and so, you know, you probably come maybe from down East somewhere or something. And then later on, I think maybe the next week I found out that he grew up here in Durham and um, which I was like, OK, I could see that. And then he talked about him, you know, growing up in a in a household that uh, Jewish uh, household went to a local congregation here. And I was like, oh, I didn't see that coming from him at all. I'm having a more progressive background and just all those things that came with it. was It was a shock to me. And then I found out as well, he grew up in a uh, black middle-class neighborhood here in Durham, uh, Hope Valley North. Sometimes it's it's weird, you know, because there are all these stereotypes of growing up in different kinds of neighborhoods and rough and tumble neighborhoods and stuff like that. And it was like, the neighborhood was all black and it was fine. You know, there wasn't, you yeah. know, there are none of these stereotypical associations. And it was a very, very tight-knit community. Which was funny because I had told him I grew up in white um, middle-class neighborhoods here in Durham. Um, the most welcoming suburb we lived in was in northern Durham. It's Eno Trace. And at that okay. time, it was it was still pretty heavily uh, white, but it was the most diverse suburb we lived in. Yeah. On our little cul-de-sac, sat, we knew most of the people. I feel like at that time period, um, when Noah and I were growing up, there was a lot of optimism about um, special on race. We, we just all have to get along and we will get along, especially our children because they don't see color. Um, that's what was being said. The goal was that you just hang out with your friends on a regular basis and then we don't have to deal with racism anymore. Like it'll go away on its own. We just keep pushing forward, right? And Noah felt that too at the time, growing up around majority black friends, but he still had white friends growing up. I definitely felt that, like, especially amongst my white friends, there's this desire to not be portrayed as stereotypical, racist, Southern, mm -hmm. you know, white men especially. You know, back then we were boys, of course. I've heard countless, countless stories, not of, uh, of parents saying racist things, but of grandparents saying mm -hmm. racist things. So, like, I definitely remember growing up where it was, like, in a certain way, and it was you know, childhood idealism and all that, but there's a certain feeling of kind of like, oh, we're, we're moving past that a bit, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, we're starting, and which is, you know, in hindsight, it's kind of like, there probably wasn't much to that. Going into middle school and high school, uh, things started changing for uh, Noah and myself when it came to the friends we grew up with who, who weren't of the same race. Yeah, I remember like telling you that kind of story the other day where it was like I reached, you know, I reached a point around like coming out of middle school and yeah. high school where it was on my end, it wasn't even a conscious thing Yeah. where it was like you start to get kind of more specified mm -hmm. in your socialized groups and like I was big into punk rock, mm -hmm. you know, and like the majority of the punk rockers were white. Yeah. So it was like at a certain point, you know, it was like I'd see these folks that I'd known one gentleman in particular we talked about, I'm, you know, I'll leave his name out of this one, but uh, 
you know, we'd known each other since we were four years old, mm-hmm. you know, and not that we were thick as thieves, but we grew up in the same yeah, neighborhood. Knew each other. We were friends. I knew his parents. He knew my parents. I hung out at his house. He hung out at my house, like all of us did at some point in time. And then it got to a point where it was just like, you know, like looking across the lobby and like realizing like, oh shit, like I'm hanging out with my group of white friends and mm-hmm. he's hanging out with his group of black friends mm-hmm. and we still live in the same neighborhood. We still talk to each other and all that, but it started to shift. I still don't know how I feel about it. There's so many sentiments and emotions I can express about that, you know, that like, um, nothing personal. And then there's part of me that's like, that's kind of personal, you know what I mean? A similar thing happened to me uh, growing up with my white friends from my childhood. Um, But for me, it happened much earlier. In second grade, my parents sent me to a Christian private school here for one year. Uh, and I was one of three black kids that I remember in the whole school. There was another girl, Courtney, she was also black. She was in fifth grade, though. I would see her in the hallways and be really excited because we shared the same name. We were both, as my mom would say, we were both chocolate little girls. Um, But that was kind of my only interaction with another kid of color in the school. Other than that, it it was a sea of white kids. All the kids in my class were white. All the teachers that interacted with me were white. I remember feeling really lonely. The teachers at every so often would send like progress reports about how we were doing as well as like, you know, what our schoolwork was like, being, you know. And um, I think I snuck mine away from my mom one time and my teacher was telling my mom every day at a certain time in class, I would just sit on my desk and cover my head and start like crying, but I was trying to hide it. I remember there was a birthday party I went to. My parents dropped me off. um, And I was the only kid of color as far as I could. Yeah, the only kid, definitely the only black kid there. And I remember playing with the kids, but uh, feeling like kind of singled out and pushed to the side. Um, And also some of the adults making me feel that way as well. And there's a picture of me at that party standing on the swing set. Like kids are running around looking all happy and I look sad. I talked to my sister Erica about that time period. She didn't go to the school with me. She still remained at home with my other siblings. You weren't a part of that, but you do remember like me not being there and all that. I remember you not being there and I remember the way that you started acting. (laughs) Which is not good. Yeah. Which is why mom and I feel guilty (laughs) to this day. And it wasn't. It was. It was very out of character for you to be doing some of the things that you were doing because you've always been like this nurturing, like little mommy. And then all of a sudden, because after you were there for a while, you were really like mean to all of us and like would it be really short with us and like not want to play with us, which I I remember and it bothered me a little bit, but. It's okay. I didn't realize it was a painful memory for me. Because I remember being mean to you guys. It was just weird for you to be that way. Yeah, because I remember feeling like, why am I acting this way towards my siblings? I love Mm -hmm. (laughs) y'all. You know, but it was really because of the environment I was in was not a good environment for me. And I was soaking up all these negative things. And it, the outlet, unfortunately, was on you guys. And um, 
So mom and dad pulled me out, which I think was a good idea. Talking uh, with Noah about, you know, his black friends and middle school and high school and the things that started happening, I could identify with what they were experiencing uh, because I felt like starting in middle school, but really in high school, I, I learned that the friendships I had weren't reciprocal in the sense of I couldn't talk about anything deep when it came to race, um, when it came to my identity as a black woman. My sister Erica, she went through a similar process, choosing to spend more time with people who look like us and understand the experiences we go through, um, and less time with white people who don't get it and don't want to get it. There isn't one particular moment. It was a culmination of moments mm -hmm. about, like when I would just say things and then people would invalidate, you know, my experience and my identity. And then I think it really, it cost too much for me, time-wise, emotionally, spiritually, and it also takes a physical toll mm -hmm. to have to try to educate folks about what it is to be black in this country and all top of it, what is it to be black and a woman in this country because that's something that's constantly overlooked. Yeah. Everybody's just gonna get along if we just hang around each other. And that was a very optimistic view. It was misguided, but it was very optimistic. And now, um, but that was our childhood. Yeah, there used to be a lot more kind of like, yeah, like you said, like even if it was maybe a little bit misplaced or a little mm -hmm. bit of a facade, there was like, there's definitely this feeling of like diversity. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, man, you know, like Hispanics, whites, blacks, you know, there was that idea. And now it's just kind of more like Durham. And it's like, well, what does that mean? You know what I mean? <laughs> Where it's like, you know, Durham, love yourself. And I'm like, well, but who are we talking about in Durham mm -hmm. to love themselves? And like, you know. I can know, talk to Noah about a lot, but there is still a little bit of a wall like, sometimes in talking with him. So some of the limitations I think are, I hate to say it, but optimism being like, oh, but, but we'll get there. And we need optimism, but being willing to understand that it's gonna, it takes, it takes more than just having a desire to get there. It takes actually putting the work in. Courtney Smith. It's easy to give great importance to our differences. Most of us have a lot of practice. Skin color and the very different experiences that come with perceived race in a culture founded on white supremacy. Where you came from, north or south, a city, a suburb, the country. What your family had or didn't have. Your schooling, your faith or lack thereof, gender, sexuality. On the other hand, certain intense shared experiences can make those differences fall away, more or less. People who go to war together, or play a sport, or make music together, may know this. Cat Rice will tell you that addiction and a shared effort to recover from it is another of those experiences. Cat has spent the last three years at TROSA, a residential substance abuse treatment center in Durham. People accepted to the program commit to living at TROSA for at least two years to undergo intensive group therapy, get vocational training, and go to work. TROSA runs moving, lawn care, and cleaning businesses, among others. The program helps people who may be unequipped to function successfully in the world. 
to rebuild themselves, as Kat puts it, from the inside out. Besides telling her own story, Kat interviewed two women who got clean at Trosa and are now on staff there, Cassandra Davis and Susan Mowry. Um, my name's Kat. I am getting ready to be 35 years old this year. I am from the Outer Banks of North Carolina originally, and I, somewhere in my life, became a heroin addict. Um, I was IV heroin addict for about 12 years. Stints in trouble with the law and going to prison for a four-year flat sentence made me wake up and realize I had to do something different. And I actually heard about Trosa through the prison system. I grew up um, on the beach. There's not a lot of black people there. I don't know if it's just the beach scene or what, but I was, thankfully, I was adopted into a family that was very understanding. They did not care if I had black friends. They didn't care if I had friends that were homosexual. They, they as long as it made me happy, they were behind me 100%. I came with a lot of baggage, but my baggage was against men. I was in a very abusive relationship for 12 years. And when I came in there, I was your typical man-hater. Now, I've always been in relationships with men, but there was no trust, there was nothing. And I, I carried that pretty much my whole program. There's a part of the program you go through, which is called your dissipation. And it's 24 to 36 hours of being in a room with people who will be your peers around the same time in your program. And you get to go through your story and kind of get this stuff off of you. I've, I've been through many, many things, uh, depression and medication and, and psychiatric help, and nothing was like this. I was able to leave it there in those rooms, and it, it was, people say game-changing, it was life-changing for me. There was male staff members in there that kind of helped me through my stuff, and I came out with this new trust that everybody's not that way. Everybody's not. Cassandra is a um, African-American woman. My name is Cassandra. Um, I was born and raised in East Orange, New Jersey. She is older than me, and she dealt with a lot of uh, racial issues growing up. What I do know, I grew up middle class, and my, uh, you know, I had a difficult time. I guess that was the era of... Uh, when you had the racial slurs and things of that nature. Uh, my one memory that has always stuck with me, my parents moved to a, a dominantly white neighborhood. We were the first, actually the second black family on that block. And I was probably about 12 or 13. And I remember, you know, the next door neighbor family was Caucasian. The little girl, probably was close to the same age, kicked my ball down the street and said, get it, nigga. And I ran in the house to my father, and he said, I want you to go back outside and play in front of your house. Your mother and I worked hard for you to be able to play. And I didn't understand then. I just knew that I didn't want to go back outside and play, but I did. So moving forward from then, I started looking at white people in a different era, that they were mean, and I didn't like them. And uh, life for me then just went, I guess, kind of crazy. Uh, didn't complete high school. I went to the 12th grade, dropped out. 
gets the drinking, the smoking, the snorting, the pills. She told me when she came to Trosa, it was it was predominantly white. And she didn't know how to take that because white people had always been, I mean, they'd been nasty to her her whole life. I used to always think that they were laughing at me. You know, I struggled with the potential of doing the requirements of the vocational assignment. The, the You know, have to get on the computer, have to write, have to spell. Uh, you know, I felt like they put me in a spot to make fun of me. And she had to learn, as I did with men, to start trusting white people and that not everybody is that way. Sandy Alger, who's head of the women's program, kind of took her under her wing. She's an older white lady. She trusted me. And that meant all the world to me, that somebody trusted me and believed in me. She didn't make fun of me. She taught me. She didn't laugh at me when I couldn't do something. So I, I trusted her that she was one out of that million that didn't care that I was black and it was things that I couldn't do. Susan was a fireball when I came in the program, and I, I kind of gravitated to her immediately. She grew up down in Alabama, and she was country. I mean, it was straight country. She calls it just down-home rednecks. People like to be around me, and I partied. And, uh, she has so been through a hell of a life, using from one end to the other riding all over the country with bikers, a lot of construction. Just wild, you know, out on the road doing it. We worked hard, but then we played hard too. And she's had some horrific things happen to her, so uh, freak accidents uh, where she was hit with a crowbar and it literally ripped her nose off her face. And when I was 17 in 1987, I was out there partying at the river and I broke, I dove off a 20 foot cliff and broke my neck all the way to the man that she loved and married and was with for 16 years, caught on fire and a drug explosion. And then being depressed, seeing this man that I loved, I mean, just completely changed. There wasn't enough dope in the world to make that go away. Uh, I had an anger issue, I definitely did, but since I've been in Trosa, I went to anger management, learned how to deal with my emotions, understanding that when I am angry, it's not just angry that I am. I'm usually hurt or, you know, uh, sad or something. But the only thing that I knew how to express was anger. And now it takes a lot to get me off my square. I mean, because I recognize I still am a work in progress, but I recognize what's your stuff, what's other people's things, and what's mine. Those are two people, when I listen to their story, one that dealt with so much prejudice in her life, and the other who came from like backwoods country that now have a working relationship, hang out on a regular basis. I hear them talk about plays that they go to, and you know, they may hang out and go to the movies or something like that, and that was almost an odd relationship to me now, knowing where they both came from. I finally found happiness. And I'm happy with myself, happy who I am, and realized that uh, I am somebody. It just takes time, um, caring, nurturing, tough love too, and being accountable. That's what a, a big of it too is, uh, a lot of people aren't accountable, and whenever they had to be accountable, they ran. 
But if you'll just stick through it, face what you do, you can get to the other side of it. And um, life's good. I, I think the bigger picture is don't judge people. You don't know where somebody came from. You don't know what somebody's been through. You don't know what somebody's learned from the situation. And you never know what road somebody's walked down until you take a chance to get to know them. Kat Rice graduated from Trosa in early 2015. She's now in training to become a staff member. Kimani Hall is the youngest of the storymakers at 23. In developing his piece for the project, he too had something to say about perceptions and assumptions. You speak so eloquently. You're so well-spoken. You're so articulate. These are a few of the phrases that I, as well as many other people of color, have heard many times. They were usually meant to be compliments. But children, and some friends, would usually put it more bluntly, saying, You talk white. I wouldn't react much to hearing someone say this, but I always thought, How do I talk white? I'm obviously black. It wasn't until I left for college that I began to see and talk to people who shared similar experiences and stories. Raised basically as an only child, I'm a lot like my mom, so I, like, so I never thought about, like how I was an individual until I had to spend summers or weekends with my cousins who were very different than me and closer to the stereotype of black people. Um, Mariel Eves is a close friend who's lived in the Raleigh-Durham area her entire life and is a graphic designer. And, uh, and a lot of that realization came from them saying things like, you sound white and you read too much and me being like not quite family because I didn't grow up in their house. So, I also spoke with Adaria Coulter, who is another close friend that lives in the Raleigh area. She's an artist who focuses on Afrocentric pieces. At this point, I am who I am, like the truest version of that that I've been thus far. Um, you know, because as a child, as a teenager, you deal with that whole, I don't know who I am, that, that mm. I'm not confident in myself, you know, the low self-esteem, all that stuff is, I mean, it just... It's just in the atmosphere for everyone, I think, so... Um, we shared our experiences and how they affected us. Because I recall the conversations where mm -hmm. people were like, it's okay, she's not a real black person. I was like, yeah, you know, I'm not really black. Mm -hmm. and I like, think that's a compliment. Yeah. Right, and, and like, childhood me was like, oh, funny, you know, not understanding that that's all reinforcing this idea that black people can't be smart, black people mm -hmm. can't be this or that, and, you know, the Oreo thing. You know, I got called mm -hmm. Oreo so much in my life that it's yep. ridiculous, and it's like... No, I mean, I am black. I'm definitely black. There's mm -hmm. nothing that says I'm not. And um, it was frustrating because it becomes this thing where all of a sudden, because I like books, you know, because I'm, I'm doing well in my classes, you know, I'm performing at the top of all of the things. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, why can't I be black and do those things? Mm -hmm. Um, and that's this crappy thing of like, I, I cringe at my former self for like laughing at that stuff mm -hmm. because like, I didn't, I didn't understand. Well, what else were you supposed to do at that time? Would you challenge that as a yeah. kid looking back? As a kid, I never, I didn't, I don't think I laughed along, but I never said anything. I didn't yeah. know. Back to Mariel. I didn't know what do you, like, what do you say to that? Like, cause it's kind of a weird, huh, you're like, not really black. Yeah. 
Because like at that, that young, you're not thinking about defending your racial identity. Mm-hmm. You're just being. Nikki Brown is another friend in Durham. She has different sorts of challenges with black identity. As a black albino, um, you know, it's, it's very obvious. And I think that in some ways people were waiting for me to act quote unquote white, you know? So like elementary school, you have that first day of school where the kids see who the parent is that brings you to school and they see what you look like. And in their mind, they're trying to figure out how this works. And so, you know, they're trying to build kind of their critique of who you are and what you're supposed to be. One thing that's constant for all of us was the need for code switching. In other words, shifting how you talk and present yourself, depending on who you're talking to. I haven't really had to think of a definition. <laughs> um, it I've, just I've happens, right? Lot, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, using different words in different groups of, in different settings in order to show that you're part of the that group. Code switching being a big yes, thing. Yes, code switching is absolutely very necessary and very important. I consider myself multilingual. <laughs> I really do. Like your mannerisms change too. It's not yeah. just your words. It's how you yeah. act. It's your volume. It's you know what you're doing with your body when you're mm-hmm. talking. It's and then they they change their voice and do that mocking white person voice where it's like everything all of a sudden the grammar is correct. Yeah, everything is proper. Mm-hmm. Um, and the you know the little the tone is a little bit different. It's like yeah. So I was with my friends. I was like uh, this dude walked up and he's like hey what are, what are you guys doing over there like <laughs> like you know that sort of thing. Where it's like, so I think we all have this basic under standing of code switching without actually knowing what it is because mm. it's part of like a requirement. The biggest example I can remember of dealing with code switching was in high school. I went to a predominantly white school while also attending a mostly black and Hispanic after school program. While I don't think I changed my speech as much as some other people did, I did understand that some social issues and jokes were much harder to bring up in one setting than another. For instance, it's one thing to sit around with other kids of color and talk about the way cops view us, and a very different thing to have that conversation with white kids. Besides those differences, my friends and I talked about that feeling that we've all had in majority white settings, that we had to uphold our entire race. You can't drop the ball because yep. you represent all the black people, so you have to, you have to do great job mm-hmm. when you're in that arena and mm-hmm. that sucks because like i can't just throw it, around words like you know because you're representing yeah everyone because yeah. my vernacular is taken as ignorance and it isn't that it's like no mm-hmm. these are just parts of my vocabulary these are things that i say amongst my friends where it's like i i understand that i can i can speak this way and use jargon and slang and it's mm-hmm. fine it doesn't make me any less educated it means mm-hmm. that it's part of my now a few years later Coming out of college, I guess I have a deeper understanding of my own identity. It's not threatened by what other people say. Black people talk in a lot of different ways, including like this. Kimani Hall. 
Next time, still more from the Storymakers team. Music in this episode by Dokapi and Blue Dot Sessions, by Lucas Bewin and his old man. The Storymakers Project is brought to you by North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, as part of Finding America, a national initiative produced by AIR, the Association of Independence in Radio, with financial support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. There are 15 Finding America projects across the country. You can find out about all of them at findingamerica.airmedia.org. More about our project at storymakersdurham.org. Subscribe to Scene on Radio if you haven't. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Scene on Radio. The show comes from the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University.